the names and titles of Jesus Christ. And the first thing I'd like to consider this evening is when the Bible says name, what does that mean? Now, the Bible uses names differently than just how you might call somebody. In Proverbs chapter 22, in verse 1, we read, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Now, as Christadelphians, we often like to look into what we call concordance, and we like to look up what that word is in the Hebrew. And when we do so, we find that that's the word Shem. And really, what we find out that that word name means is report or character. And so it's not necessarily how you call somebody, but maybe you could say it's what you might think about when you hear that person's name, what type of, what type of feeling you might get or, or what, what kind of reputation they might have. So, or how one is thought of or remembered. And we see a point to this brought out by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. And starting at verse 15. And it reads, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or thorns or figs or thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And really, when we talk about a name, we're talking about what type of fruit someone might bear. As Christ said, you'll know them by their fruit. Well, really, by the reputation that they have, is, that comes by the fruit that they bear. And really, if we, if we think about this in terms of the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul goes into Galatians 5 versus the works of the flesh, really, it's a measure of that. You know, do we see the fruit of the Spirit or do we see the works of the flesh, the, sorry, the flesh being manifested? And the second point I want to bring out is that when we look at names in the Bible, we're not only looking at the name as far as the, the, the report of that name, or let's say the reputation that that name might bring along it, with it, but we also look up what the meaning of that name might be, right? And we can go through, and we'll go through a few examples in Genesis just to see how this works out. Um, if you'll all turn to Genesis chapter 17, and we'll start off at uh, verse 1. Starting at verse 1, 
And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with thee and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abraham, but thy, Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations I, have I made of thee. And so we see the reason why God changed Abraham's name. And when we look up what Abraham means in our concordance, we come up with it means father of a multitude. And so we understand that God's purpose with, with Abraham, we're told in Genesis 22 that he was going to make his, his descendants as the sand of the seashore or as the stars of the sky, right? So a great multitude was going to come out of Abraham. And so God appropriately gave him a name that talked about his purpose with Abraham. And we see down the page in verse 15 that God also, he changed Sarah's name. Right? He changed Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah. He gave her a royal name as if the name of a queen. We know that Jacob's name was changed. Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel. And we're told in, in Genesis 32 and 28, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. And the text goes on to say, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And if we look up the word Israel in our concordances, we find out that it means to prevail or have power. And then the L at the end means with God. And we know he also had power prevailed with men. Looking back to the reading that we had, we see uh, in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to start off in verse 7 here. We read, But Christ made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in a fashion as men, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And a couple points we want to make here. Uh, first, I think the most obvious one is that the name of Jesus is above all other names. And second thing is that it wasn't a chosen name. It was a given name. Christ was named by God himself. And the third thing I want to point out, and we'll come back to this a little bit later is 
when it talks about how Christ made himself of no reputation, but humbled himself, and we'll see that in the way that Christ refers to himself throughout the scriptures. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to start off at uh, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so in this account, we see the angel talking to Joseph, and we see that the angel, in a dream, of course, we see that the angel um, tells Joseph that his name shall be called Jesus. And we also see the reason why. It says, for he shall save his people from, his, from their sins. And if we take a look at this word, in our concordance, we see that the name Jesus is Yahashua in the Hebrew. And the literal meaning of this word is, it comes from Yahweh and Yasha, Yahweh being God and Yasha being to save or to deliver. And so we see his purpose in his name. For he was sent to deliver his people from their sins, as we're told in the text. And so we see his name means Yahweh saves. As we go forward, we'll see that the names and titles of Jesus Christ all speak to either part of God's plan and purpose with Jesus, or they speak to his character. And these, these names and the, these, these uh, titles, they give us a, a wonderful picture of who Jesus was and the things that he has done or will do in the future. In considering the title Christ or Messiah, if we look at Messiah in the Old Testament, it really just literally translates to um, Christ. They're interchangeable. Um, and the word Messiah it comes from the Hebrew word Mishiach. And it means to anoint or rub with oil. Now, if we look back into the Old Testament, there's really three purposes for why people would be anointed. And Christ would 
is God's anointed to fulfill three purposes. The first one is a prophet. And I'm going to uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. And we read, starting off in verse 15, And the Lord said unto him, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And this is the Lord speaking to Elijah here. And when thou comest, unto, when thou comest anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola shall thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And so we see here a prophet being anointed. We have Elijah anointing Elisha. And so the purpose of Christ being called the anointed one would be one of the purposes that he was a prophet. He was to be a prophet like unto Moses, right? And as a prophet like unto Moses, we see the, the parallel where Moses led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, which Christ leads us all out of the bondage from sin. The second part where Christ would be anointed for would be as a priest. And we can see Christ fulfilling the role of a priest in Hebrews in chapter 17, or chapter 7, I'm sorry. And I'll start off at uh, verse 19 here. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. And in as much as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him, and said that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And of course, the third reason for Christ to be anointed would be as a king. And we're told in Luke chapter 1 and verse 32. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. So he was going to reign, or will reign, as a king. We also see in the last verse that we read that he would be called the son of the highest, the son of the most high God. And we see that when Christ first came, he was the only one who had that opportunity. And because of the work he did, we know from 1 John that that opportunity was extended to all those who would follow after him. And we read in verse 1 of 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And in, down to verse 2, Beloved, now are we the son, sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know 
that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, when we think about that title, the Son of the Highest or the Son of God, and then we, we're going to take a look at next, the title, the Son of Man. But notice who always uses that. That's always what Jesus calls himself. And if you actually look through all of the Gospels, when the, when the phrase, the Son of Man, is used, it is almost always, and it might be always, but I didn't look through every single one, it is almost always Jesus talking about himself. And I think that's noteworthy because he was the Son of God, and he looked at himself as the Son of Man. He humbled himself. And I think that's part of what Philippians was telling us right? When he was called the son of God, it was usually by one of his followers or, of course, by his father. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 9 and in verse 4 to show this, and I've got a couple of them here, but I'm going to skip through a few. Matthew 9, starting at verse 4, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether is it easier, whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven, or to say, Arise and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thy house. You know, and we could go through more here. Matthew 10, the, the, the Lord speaking to his disciples, again he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And you know, as I said, if you trace it through and you look at all the times that phrase was used, it's almost always Jesus referring to himself. I want to go back to uh, Matthew chapter 1 and look at verse 22, verses 22 and 23. And here we'll look at the, the name Emmanuel. Starting at verse 22. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by, of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, being interpreted, is God with us. So the, the interpretation is for us right there in the verse, what, what it means. It means God with us. And the reason why that name was given to Christ, it had nothing to do with him being God. He wasn't God. He was a man. He was given that name because of how he reflected God. They were of the same purpose and... He, the way he lived, was the perfect reflection 
of his father. And we also see that in another one of his titles in John chapter 1, where John says, but as many as received him, this is starting at verse 12, sorry, but as many as received him, to then gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And he beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that word that word is used um, in the text there, that word means logos. And it really, it, it isn't like the English word that we use for word. It really has to do with the spirit word of God. And the spirit word of God is able to guide us. It has the idea of leading and guiding. And I think probably one of the best ways to describe this, because I'm not great at describing things, is to just take a, a, a memory verse that we all know, right? 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did, did that. In his actions, in his teachings, in the way that he dealt with others, he embodied all of the teachings that his father gave to him and has shared with us. All the principles. And it was evident, it was so evident, that John wrote, the word was made flesh. Because all he had to do is look at what Christ did. And it was like as if he was reading the Bible. He was a perfect manifestation of his father. And that's what God wants from all of us. He wants us to manifest his character. And he's giving us, given us his word, Logos, that we can know what he wants from us, and that we are able to, to learn his principles and be guided by them. In John chapter 17, in verse 6, we read this, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given them, given unto them the words which thou gavest me. And they have received them and have, and have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. 
but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And skipping down to verse 26, Christ uses a different word than manifest here. He says, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast, hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Christ manifested, it says. He declared God's name. And he was able to do this because everything that he did, everything that he said, reflected his father's character and his father's principles and those things contained in the word. Turn with me to John chapter 1, please. And we're going to look at starting off at uh, verse 26. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth among you whom ye know not. He it is whose coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethbara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. For the sake of time, we're not going to go there, but if you look through Revelation and you see the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb, it's all over. Christ was the perfect Lamb of God. And in his sacrifice, he was able to accomplish what no other sacrifice was able to accomplish and actually abolish sin. It says in Rome, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And we know that the high priest and the priest of under the wall, they had to continually offer. And so he was the perfect sacrifice and the perfect lamb. We also know that Christ is often referred to as the chief cornerstone. Please turn with me to 1 Peter in chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 1 here. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men but chosen of God and precious ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, who also is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion, Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And we see that this house, it's not a house made with hands. It's a spiritual house that Christ is building, a spiritual house of believers, of who he was the first, and he is the chief cornerstone. It's very similar to the analogy where we talk about the body of Christ, and Christ represents the head. Now, for the remainder of our time together this evening, we're going to go through the titles that we see from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah in chapter 9. And if you could all turn there. And starting at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. What a lovely passage that is. And I think, you know, in some cases it can be a little bit confusing. We think of, you know, as an example, God as the Father. And so we're going to dig into what these things mean here. Um, we'll have to go into the Hebrew words and understand them. So the first one, wonderful, well, the word comes from Pella, and hopefully I pronounce these right because I am not a Hebrew scholar, and it's related to the word Pala. So what is meant by that word? Well, if we look at the usage of that word, it's the same word that is used when God says to Moses that he's going to do wonders to bring his children out of Egypt. So Exodus 3 and verse 18 is, reads, And they shall hearken to my voice, and thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt, and ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, now let us go, we beseech thee, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders. And there's our word. There's our word, all God's wonders. And what were those wonders? Well, they were miracles. And so 
God performed miracles in bringing the plagues upon the Egyptians in order to bring his people out of bondage from the Egyptians. And how fitting is it here that that same word, God's wonders, is bestowed on Christ as he brings us out of bondage with sin. And I believe that's why that word wonderful is used there. Because the conquering of sin is what Christ accomplished. The next title that we have in the text here is Counselor. And the Hebrew for this word counselor is Yawatz. And it means to give advice, to counsel, or to guide. And I think in the points that we covered earlier about how Jesus was the Word made flesh, and about how Christ manifested his Father in his life, I think that's really where we have the strongest counsel or guide uh, from Christ. Now, when we go through trials in life, we're probably the worst people for seeing our own faults and for dealing with things the way that, you know, perhaps, perhaps we should, for following advice, and, and, and that's our nature. And perhaps we don't rely on God's principles when we need to rely on God's principles. And a lot of times we'll talk to a brother or a sister um, and, and we'll get that, you know, we'll have that conversation because it's always easy to see, you know, what somebody else should do, right? It's harder to see what we should do. And I think that, you know, an example of Christ is when he was tried of just how fully he was able to, to, you know, be that reflection of God and be that wonderful or that counselor and, and show us the way. And we see that in his temptations where he, he had fasted for 40 days. And what happens? How does he deal with his temptations, Right? when he was tempted to, to turn the stones into bread and he, he was starving, he, he answers it with scripture. He goes back to Deuteronomy and he says, he thinks within himself and he, he tells himself, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So he's overcoming his temptations with the word. And for us, that's, that's the testament of how he was the perfect embodiment of God's principles in this. And he doesn't just do it once. When he was tempted 
to throw himself off the, the, the temple. What does he say? Well, he replies, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when he was tempted by the glory of the world, right, he, he, he replies, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So, and when he's in the temple in Jerusalem, and the money changers are there, what is he, his counsel for them? He says, is it written? My house shall be called of all nations a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves every single time. It was about what was written. It was about the word. The next title we'll look at is The Mighty God. Now, this is made up of two words. We have El, which means God, and Gabor, which means a mighty one or a warrior. And uh, we've gone through this in some of our Sunday schools quite a bit. But those two words make up the name Gabriel. And so the point isn't being made that Jesus is God. The point is being made that Jesus is a mighty one. And certainly we can agree Gabriel wasn't God. He was an angel. But believe this is talking about when Christ returns. Because what will Christ do when he returns? Christ will subdue the nations of the earth that stand against the divine purpose. That's what he will do. And we see this warlike description. If we go to Revelations, and we're going to take a look at Revelations 19, and starting at verse 14, we see this warlike talk about what it'll, Christ will be like when he returns Revelation 19 and verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And then we see another title in verse 16. And, on, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh bone a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is how Christ will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords after the earth has been subdued. And he will come as a mighty man of God. And all those on earth will be subject unto him. The next title we'll look at is Everlasting Father. And the word father comes from the Hebrew word ab. 
and it means father, chief, or forefather. And I'd like to take a look at Hebrews in chapter chapter 2 and starting at verse 9 to try to better understand what is meant by Jesus as an everlasting father. Hebrews 2 and starting at verse 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Now, in verse 13, where it says children, that is not talking about Christ's literal children. Not in a flesh and blood type of way. It's talking about the spiritual children. And the idea of Christ as being an everlasting father is Christ went first, he went before all of us. And he's being expressed as an everlasting father because anybody who gets to the millennium and beyond, guess what? He was the first one. He was the one who made it possible. And all those who get there, It's only through him. And so as such, he's a spiritual father to everyone. We see a similar thought when we look at Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, where Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith, his own son in the faith. Well, Paul wasn't Timothy's father but he was a spiritual father unto Timothy. See, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, we read this, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher. He started it, and he'll be there at the end. Let's next take a look at the uh, title, Prince of Peace. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, where Jesus is the Prince of Peace, will come when the kingdom is established. Reading in Isaiah 35, in verse 10, and you need not look it up, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with gladness and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. And Micah 4.3, And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. 
and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So when Christ returns, the earth will change, right? The, the, there will be a time of peace such as has never been before. But that's not the only peace that it's talking about here. It's talking about the peace that we can all draw from Christ right now today as well. We read in Ephesians chapter 2, and starting at verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments and contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And we notice that when Paul states that Christ is our peace, he is using the present tense. Christ tore down the barrier between God and man. Christ acts daily as our mediator and intercessor with his Father. And our faith in that, and our faith in God's mercy, allows us now to have peace. And so as we've considered this night many of the names of Christ in the scriptures, let us look into Revelation in chapter 3. Because that name he promises to share with us, and we'll end here. And look, starting at verse 11. Behold, I come quickly, hold thou fast, which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God and I will write upon him my name.